you have entered into the morning black. I'm your host, Greg Jones, and we are at WVLP 103.1 on your FM dial. Good morning. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. This is WVLP Morning Black, building leaders in cultural knowledge. My name is Paula Tillman, and I'm here with my co-host, Professor Gregory Jones. We are going to have a interesting and interesting conversation this morning. And I'd like to say that this segment is dedicated to my friend and co-church member, who lost her son uh, a couple of weeks ago in some senseless gang violence. His name is Aaron Davis. He was gunned down in front of his house in Gary, Indiana. So, Professor Jones, um, this is an entree into our conversation today, uh, parenting in the black community. Absolutely, absolutely. Good morning, Paula. It's good to have another voice leading us in. Thank you. Thank you for that. All right. All right. Yeah, we're going to have an interesting uh, discussion about uh, this little brother that just got, you know, just just was killed and her family. Um, What's the mom's name? Her name is Pamela Davis. Right. So um tell us a little about i mean what you know about the the situation and then we're going to get into before you do that um jane uh uh schreiner handed me a a packet uh at a a meeting that i was at and it had to do with black parenting and it had basically seven accounts of african-american women um you know sharing information about uh how they're trying to raise their their children. Some of the uh, uh, couples were biracial. Um, all the all the kids, you know, were I believe, or m- at least most of the kids were uh, that were talked about were uh, African American girls. But there were some uh, boys as well in the accounts that were given. And we're gonna we're gonna kind of try to unpack that today. I'm gonna use that as a basis. Thank you. Shout out to Jane. Thank you for you know giving us that you know kind of background so that we can kind of unpack this from a um, critical race theory. And so I, wanna, I want to begin by just giving Paula an opportunity to, to tell us a little about what happened at her parish and, and uh, to, the, to this individual. So. Right. Um, I'm a member of an African-American uh, Catholic church in Gary, Indiana, Saints Monica and Luke. Parish and Pamela Davis has been our stalwart uh, secretary at that parish for the last 22 and a half years. And she had a son, Aaron. I believe Aaron was 19 years old. And according to the story that I just heard uh, from others, Someone supposedly texted her son and told him to come outside in the text. And when he came outside, the perpetrators drove by and gunned him down and killed him. 
Um, wow, wow. Yes. In, in front of his house? In front of his house. Was his mom at home at the time? I don't think she was at home. In fact, I believe she was actually at the church. At the church. At, at the church. Working at the church. And um, so I think that someone either called her or sent her a text message and told her to come home that there had been, you know, like mm-hmm. a tragedy at her house. So I believe Aaron had um, uh, some other siblings. I'm not really sure um, exactly. I didn't really know uh, Pam personally, except, you know, to call her every now and then regarding information I might have needed about the church or some activities going on. Was that her only child? I don't think so. No, it was not her only child. Um, I believe she had at least one other uh, son, possibly two. Mm. I I don't know uh, her whole family uh, structure. So, um, you know, having said that, and then going back to the stories that were sent to you by Ms. Schreiner, uh, I think that we have to examine black parenting from a lot of different perspectives. Well, yeah, um, and, and uh, this is not to, you know, downplay the important information that was given in the, in the packet, but when we talk, this is the thing about critical race theory. When we talk about critical race theory, when we look at information, what we have to do is we have to unpack it. We have to basically peel it so that we can get as many points of view as possible in relationship to the, the issues that we're dealing with in terms of race and society and things of that nature. One of the things that I noticed about the, the, the article is that most of these individuals are basically middle class, upper middle class uh, writers, basically, who are, or, or you know, administrators who are basically talking about their kids. Which is cool because that's a reality as well, and we're gonna. I'm I'm gonna take some specific looks at that, but one of the things that we have to recognize is that when we talk about the kinds of impacts of disparities that are happening in African American communities, it is not just a middle class issue. It's I mean you know for example, um, many parents work all day every day, and they Absolutely. and they're at home. They're not at home at all with their kids. The kids are more than latchkey. They, they, the, the kids basically are at home by themselves, okay? And it's neighbors and it's, you know, grandparents and other individuals who are raising folk, okay? Um, and it's, it's not because black people are just poor. That's not the issue. The issue is that there's such a, a wealth of disparity inside the communities that the parents have to double down in, in, in terms of survival, I mean, you know, so uh, we have to take a look at that. So there is a, 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 a serious class issue that is impactful in the, the African-American community and the Hispanic-American community. I mean, you know, I was just <coughs> noticing on the news, Paula, I don't know if you saw this, but you, out west they've been having this extraordinary heat, you know, wave, right? Okay. 120, 115. My goodness. And who can't not go to work are the migrant workers. Exactly. They so the migrant be. workers and their kids are in the heat. 
so that we can eat this little, you know, this this lettuce and these cucumbers and you know oranges and oranges and stuff, right? They can't. I mean, you know, that's their gig, you know. And they were showing, you know, it was a segment showing how, you know, folks were trying to get to the migrant workers, give them more water because, you know, they were heat stroking out. They were just falling out, you know, from from the the sheer heat of you know, having to work out in the fields all day long. Were there, were there children with them? No. For the most part, yeah. In, in the summertime, the children work too. Yeah. You know, because you, 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 you work on volume, you know. So, yeah. Yeah. Right. You know, and I mean, see, people are not really taking those kinds of things into account when we talk about the disparities, just the, the sheer level of disparities. So we, we wanna, we're gonna look at the, the, the article itself that Jane gave us, but we're gonna kinda unpack it in a way in which we can kinda better get a sense of what are some of the, the intersecting issues that are impactful when we talk about black parenting. So you wanna start us off? I, I think that the articles, I, I read, uh, the articles, mm -hmm. uh, and I think I would describe the individuals who <clears throat> presented their parenting styles as intentional parenting, <clears throat> and it was beautiful, you know, the things that these uh, young uh, writers, mothers, were saying about what they did to shape their children's mindsets uh, about self-pride and, um, you know, education and the importance of being an individual and seeing yourself as a positive person. Um, and as you and I discussed, uh, Greg, this is, this is not your typical American family. Uh, Typical group of uh, African-American folk. Right. I mean, it's typical, but it's not typical in terms of, I mean, uh, you know, the first lady's a writer, the second lady, um, you know, let's see, she's uh, Latonia Yvette. She, she's, she's uh, I believe, a administrator. Yeah. She is the founder of the Lifestyle blog, L.Y., and author of the book, Woman of Color, is currently working on a memoir and a children's book. She lives in Brooklyn. So they're writers, they're administrators, and things of that nature. Right. Know, um, which, um, it's not to say that African-American women and men don't write. It's just that many don't get a chance to get recognized and get stuff published because it's, it's not a, a widely... Uh, invited feel for African-American women to participate in, women in particular to participate in, but certainly African-American women, you know, have to wrestle to the top of that glass ceiling to try to get acknowledged. Let me, let me give you an example of what uh, we're, we're trying to get to here. Let's look at Untroubled Waters by uh, Latonia Yvette. Uh, I'm going to read that and then we're going to have some, we're going to try to unpack it a bit. Uh, children first become comfortable underwater by learning how to hold their breath. So when my children, River and Oak, began to learn how to swim in the summer of 2018, it was the first thing their teacher taught them. Inhale, purse your lips, and push bubbles out as you go. 
They had won the swim classes in the city lottery that year and loved the experience. In 2020, before we sheltered in place, the kids had their second round of swimming lessons at the local YMCA. Now the lesson was to allow the water to support them. They couched, poised to jump in, their little toes curled around the edge of the pool, knees pressed against their pouty, shivering lips, uh, arms stretched out wide, calling on some kind of power. I think only children know. Their teacher guided them as they jumped, then hosted their wetsuit-heavy bodies halfway out of the cold water. Try again, she said. Again and again they jumped until their old fears were formal ones. During quarantine, even baths were our only connection to water, a way to pass the hours, days, and months. I'm a born and bred New Yorker, and so are my kids. We made the most of what our city offered us in a trying time. But this past summer, given the opportunity to stay at a friend's COVID-19 safe home with a pool, I watched my kids literally jump back in. They remembered what they knew as easily as my son's toes uh, wagged in the water. My daughter's skinny limbs swayed from side to side, their curls soaked and woven into their long eyelashes, nestled beside their wide and joyful mouths. This image of my black children happy in the water is part of a bigger account of being black and of being a, a black city kid. Accessibility to kids' swimming classes in New York City and across the country has historically been tied to wealth and class, effectively perpetuating racism and classism. I have countless photos of prior summers in which my children run through splash pads with their bare, chunky feet, smiling and laughing. But this particular joy in the pool of their full bodies connecting with the water, how they allowed themselves to trust it so easily, despite everything they had experienced that spring, was one of the most powerful sights I have beheld as a mother and a woman. It wasn't just the happy faces of kids in a pool or only their remembered comfort with the water. It was the boundless freedom, something tangible and beautiful, that they learned that they had a right to access and that they could because I'm lucky enough to be their mother. I can too. Okay. So, again, this is an example of an extraordinary situation. Uh, I think that most of our parenting, when I say our, I mean in the black households, especially among working uh, families, sure. does not mirror the situation that this young woman uh, talked about in her article. Many uh, yeah, uh, African-American families have children that they have to leave at home many times to be on their own right uh, um, there, there's there's not a lot of um, opportunities to get teachers to teach kids how to swim um, there's not a lot of opportunities for you to have a wetsuit and you know instruction in terms of you know getting involved in pools and and she herself is saying that it, it, um, the kids were lucky they kind of you know, got on that in terms of a lottery. Um, but the question would be is, would the kids in a, normally be accessible to that learning experience in terms of learning how to swim? My experience, um, and I'm dated, but uh, there was nobody in the community that was, I mean, we, we didn't see 
swimming as something that we had necessarily access to. Although uh, in my neighborhood there was in Washington Park in Chicago, we had the Washington Park pool, which right. was a, it was built during the uh, basically the uh, World's Fair, <laughs> okay. right? So so it was like a uh, state of the art kind of thing back in 1909 or something like that. <laughs> Um, yeah. But and that was the pool that air, all kids on the south side, near south side, went to. So it was always crowded. Um, most of us couldn't swim. Um, you know, the the shadow end was always overcrowded than the the you know the deep end. There were a couple of people who could swim, but we didn't have the same kind of access, and certainly we didn't have any programs where people were actually teaching us instruction and stuff like that. Um, so yeah, I think, I think what we're seeing here is, we're seeing despite the, the I, I think, important insights that the young lady gives about how her kids f felt good about being around water, that that's not something common in the African-American community. And, 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 and let me change the, the direction a little bit. Um, I know a young man who runs a program in the inner city of Chicago, and we talked a little about this last week, where um, his program is to take kids downtown and oh, have right. them experience downtown culture. I mean, he was able to fund that, so w which means that there was he was able to produce the rationale for the need and the numbers and you know and the people themselves so there is definitely a discrepancy in how people are exposed to new things in our community and i think the struggle is for parents to make a decision about what they do with their time with their children. And if you are in a situation where resources are a number one need, then you have less time to offer positive options to your child. Well, let's, uh, let's just say one thing. We were able, as a people, able to survive uh, the the awful scourge of slavery with certain institutions uh, in the black community. And one of them was the church. The other one was, uh, let's say, black banks. The other one was institutions of higher learning, the HBCUs, and the most important element that kept us together was the black family, however you describe family. So we are strong in that sense, but we are now in a different world, so to speak, because back then um, we had to stick together. We had to form alliances between and among one another. You know, you hear stories of if, you know, Johnny did something bad and the neighbor saw you, the neighbor could come out and discipline Johnny. Um, that is not happening now. 
Well, uh, absolutely. I mean, you know, um, I was just, I had a flash moment. You might want to see a film uh, that teaches, you know, the how this transitions. Uh, Diane Carroll and James Earl Jones did a very controversial film called Claudine. Claudine was a, 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 was a young lady who was on welfare, and she had like four kids. And um, it showed the process in terms how the agency made sure that the man could not be in the household with Claudine in order for Claudine to get the money to to, to do you know to to take care of her kids. So we see a couple of things happening in terms of federal policy. Uh, in the United States that uh, directly attacked uh, our community as it relates to keeping families together. That was always an issue, but it becomes federal policy. You know, in other words, it, it, it was always something that the state did. Um, it becomes more and more a part of state policy. And I mean, I don't want to go into, um, and we could have another conversation about uh, the birth control legislation that was done in terms of um, offering up to people the opportunity for vasectomy and you know uh, other kinds of things to do to contribute to the limiting of your ability to produce a child and its connection to welfare okay that's a, that's history okay that's that's you know people were asking questions well why people don't want to get the shot <laughs> Exactly. Okay. <laughs> okay. So right. the reason why people are still struggling with that is because you've got these policies that have ro been rolled out, you know, on former generations that have not been so kind to, um, you know, the black family and, and black people. I mean, you know, so we don't have to go to the popular ones like, you know, the Tuskegee Institute, you know, studies and stuff and things like that. Uh, there are other things that have happened and continue to happen in the African American community that causes, you know, some people to have a chagrin at, you know, maybe, um, you know, the the kinds of things. Not to say that that's not, uh, you know, it's, it, 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 you know, that's not the right way to think about it. I mean, I think everybody should get the shot. That's that, you know, right. that, I think that's the deal. But I think you got to understand why people are are hesitant and why people are some people are just downright afraid um, but we've had this history of the, the attempt to break down the family uh, and so the, the whole notion of parenting has been something that has been uh, attacked for some time in the african-american community uh, in on several different levels and we haven't had the kinds of conversations that we need to have about how that gets remedied um, I know you say you're from a military family, so your situation was a bit different. Yes, very different. Mm -hmm. But I'm sure that you encountered individuals who had different kinds of nuclear family uh, situations. And so, what was your what was your experience, Paula, when you were a child? When you you know, I mean, I I know. The, the part that you mentioned oftentimes, you said your family is very disciplined because, you know, it, it was a military family, so you, there are certain rules and regulations had to be followed. Um, but growing up, uh, what was your experience with, say, your playmates, people around you, and things of that nature? Well, uh, growing up, 
this was also very unusual. Uh, we lived in what I'm going to call a compound. Uh, my great aunt and uncle were able to secure a building on the west side of Chicago. And uh, I think it's, the neighborhood is uh, called Lawndale. And um, when you say playmates, my playmates were my cousins. And um, family. It was family. We all lived in this compound. Like there were uh, one family of cousins lived in the front building and two sets of families, myself and uh, my other cousins, lived in the back. And in the middle was actually a yard. And that's who we um, could play with. And uh, it's not that they told us we couldn't play with anyone else, but situationally, uh, these were the kids that we um, that I grew up with. What was the the main virtues that your parents instilled in you when you were little? Well, certainly. Um, Can you? I mean, and, and upon the reading, did you, could you see some things familiar? Well, and uh, in, in talking about water, uh, my mind jumped back to the fact that I was lucky enough, quote unquote. My mother uh, was a maintenance worker in. A local high school in Inglewood High School and in the summer they offered summer school uh, and summer swimming classes mm -hmm. so she was able to get me uh, enrolled in the summer swimming classes and I learned how to swim even though I was still I wasn't in high school but she knew the swimming teacher the swimming coach and um, I took lessons along with the high school kids. Hmm. So I learned how to swim in Inglewood High School. Wow. Um, so, and. So, how old were you when you learned how to swim? Probably around 10. Wow. Or 11. Now, now let me show you a contrast, right? Let's do yes. a contrast. Okay. <laughs> um, when I was about 10, uh, I went with some local kids to the local YMCA. Mm -hmm. um, everybody had different various levels how to swim. I didn't know how to swim. When we get to the YMCA, it's a bunch of kids. Ain't nobody watching. Ain't no, there's there's no lifeguard per se. Right. The director is kind of, you know, not paying attention and stuff. Kids are being kids. Everybody's pushing everybody in the, in, the, in the pool and stuff. I get pushed in the pool on the deep end. I'm drowning, right? Okay. So I'm down on the, <laughs> I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm down on the on the bottom of the pool sucking air, right? Trying, you know, <laughs> trying to figure it out, right? Uh, they finally find me, right? And they say, "Oh, you know, he don't know how to swim, right?" So uh, just in time, the director comes in and they they put the pole in, and then you know, somebody Drag dives in out. and drags me out, right? That's my first experience, right? I don't see water again until. I'm like 24, oh and I'm goodness. in Kennedy King College, and I had hurt my knee, and I took a class, right, with some old women, old black women, and they were learning basic aquatic skills, and they called us the guppies, and I was a guppy, right? Yes. <laughs> and I, I became a guppy. And then I became a, like a, a frog, and then you know you you end up becoming you know a fish. You know and these are different levels, but I was I was like 24, 25 years old. 
My mom didn't know any, anything about this because my mom worked seven days a week. Oh, my goodness. I had to navigate this on my own. Exactly. You, you see what I'm saying? I mean, you know, I just wasn't nobody around to 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 deal with that. Right. And and I would, I would suspect there are a number of young people like that. Well, I became aware of the issue of children raising children. Uh, my, like I said, my mother was a maintenance worker in a high school. My father was a, a maintenance worker for the Board of Education in a playground setting. Uh-huh. And he would often say that he would see these young children, six and seven years old, with their siblings who were two Brothers, and, yeah. and three years old. They were the babysitters for these uh, little children. That was our family, right? Yes. That, that was and our so family. so you have the situation of the parentified child. Right. I, I mean, um, yeah. So when you were young, because you had a two-parent family. Yes. What were, name three values that were instilled in you early on. I would say um, hard work, uh, honesty, and um, I would say Christianity. Christianity. You know, going to church. Okay. Um, I don't know what you, you know, call that, but. Yeah. Um, those religiosity were, or you know yes. you know you know faith tradition you know kind of yes. stuff like that yes and so every sunday you know that was uh, our routine you knew you had to go to church and, and reading the articles you know reading the, the the several accounts that the 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 young women give one of the things i noticed is they were present in their children's lives you know so they yes. you know did you notice that in the, yes. in, in the article yeah they they were not separate from what their children's experiences because one young lady talks about how um the little girl that spoke you know at the uh the inauguration and right. things of that nature right that was that was you know uh she sit with her kid and they watched that and then simone bones and, and some of the other olympic kids that were you know doing things her kids were uh she monitored her kids as her kids were basically watching that and responding to that and one of the things that I noticed that all of the seven had in common was is that they were very present in their kids' lives, you know. So they, they were doing things with their kids or they were interacting with their kids in the, you know, in the space of, of, of that. Did you notice that in the article? Oh, absolutely. That's why I said that you can classify those women as intentional parents. You That's know, what you meant by intentionality. Yeah, inten you have to be intentional. Uh, let's go to the other end of the spectrum uh, in the situations, not even further removed from the situation you came up in. Um, I was a uh, police officer in Chicago, and this was in the 80s, 90s um, in Chicago. And part of my job was, as a youth officer, was that we would have to if we got some report of neglect, we would have to go, show up. We would have to show up and see what was going on. And so I became aware that 
you know, abject poverty. You did not have to go to Africa or uh, some foreign country across the water to see abject poverty in action. And so uh, we would, one home that I remember going to um, was in the projects in Chicago, uh-huh. uh, public housing, and went to the house. There, The only book in the house that I could see was a telephone book, The Yellow Pages. Hmm. And there was the television, and in the refrigerator there was literally nothing, maybe a jar of peanut butter, maybe a loaf of bread, uh-huh. um, furniture and furnishings. There were none. And so, and, you know, these are situations that kids are growing up in. And sadly, a lot of parents in our community are not parenting. Well, I mean, do you think it's changed? I mean, you know, this is, that that was then. Let's say, you know, not not to date ourselves, but, you know, let's say, you know, okay, so we're talking, you know, I'm talking some time ago, you know, when I, when I, I'm talking about a kid. So let's say we fast forward 60 years. Yes. Right? Still happening? It's still happening, but I think with the added ingredients, at least in my perception, uh-huh. of drug use, incarceration. Increased drug use. Increased, increased car- okay. Uh, yes. Because it was happening then, but it wasn't happening at the same level as happening right. now. Right. And uh, parents are psychologically... Uh, and physically dropping out of their children's lives. Wow, wow. I would, yeah, I would, I would, I have a tendency to agree with you on that. I mean, I, I, what I see is basically, um, and I, I'm, a, I'm not going to go back as far as my childhood, but let's say since I've been in Valpo, right, about 30, 30 some years. I used to go to pick up kids for church and I would find the four-year-old trying to make breakfast for the two-year-old. Sure. Right, right. Because I, I used to have a running rivalry with uh, a local church that used to send their, their bus around and and their deacons and stuff would run in and, and grab these kids and take them. Take them they still church. do that. And they still do. And I'm not going to name the, the churches, but, I mean, you know, and they had all sorts of incentives for the kids. Like, they had Chuck E. Cheese on the bus, and they had free pop on the bus, and you could get McDonald's vouchers on on the bus and stuff like that. So the kids started figuring out, okay, so if I get up and go with these folks, spend this hour or two with them, I'll get this, lit- this, this lit- liter of pop and, you know, I could go to McDonald's, you know, stuff and things like that. So they did stuff like that. But I would find these kids, and I would find these homes. And and the parents would be in the home, but they might be asleep, you know. Uh, Sometimes the parents were not there. And uh, these kids were just up, you know, and they were just navigating themselves. And it it kind of was reminiscent of the times that I had to deal with because my mom had to work. And so she was gone, you know, at 4 a.m. She's out, you know. And so we getting up getting ready for school, going to school, coming back home, mom come home, doing lunchtime, start start dinner, you had to finish it, and then she'd be home at night. And that was like six days a week. Um, and so I know that, they, that that life 
existed. But what 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 really surprised me is that fast forward fifty years, sixty years, it's still going on. You know, people are still living like that, where kids are basically raising themselves. Yes. You know, uh, and and this is and it's just not it's not just African Americans. I mean, this is this is everybody. But in particular, I'm looking at, you know, these kids of color who are basically, you know, navigating it themselves. And I know kids in this community now who basically live like that and raise themselves and are in the community now and navigating their survival having lived like that. Yes. Yeah. You know, I and I guess we would... I call the women in the article intentional parents. Right. But we have a lot of unintentional parenting uh, going on. But the other thing that is not going on in our communities today Mm -hmm. that may have gone on in yesteryear was the fact that there were community centers in some cities, I'm not saying this happened in every city, but there were community centers where kids could go after school, before school, um, and they would learn social skills. They would learn things. Maybe they learned how to play chess. Maybe they would, young men mm-hmm. would learn how to box. Maybe they could play basketball. But you, know, you know what? <laughs> I, now this is this is a true story. Saint Anselm's, which was basically basically uh, uh, a parish, yes, that Catholic. was around the corner that we could go and we knew we could get chocolate milk. The priest would let us get chocolate milk and play ping pong in the basement. Okay. Okay. I mean, you know, and it, it was a safe haven, so to speak. Yes. You know, because we didn't have any place else to to go. There was a lot of other negative stuff going on, but I remember very distinctly running up to Sixty First Street. And Indiana, 61st in Indiana, yes. where St. Anselm's was, and you know we would we would go there, and you know he would he would just sit out. He would just have crates and crates of ice cold chocolate milk, and you know we would you know the kids would love that, and they would, and there was like a, um, a basketball court, you know, and then you could come in, and you could go downstairs, and there's like he had three or four ping pong tables, and we would play ping pong and stuff like that. It deteriorated once the game presence became more and more a reality the priest became afraid and then you know then essentially he he attempted to provide a space but then he, you know it, got, it overwhelmed him i mean you know he couldn't he couldn't deal with the kind of reality that we were dealing with uh you know out there in the community one of the uh, uh, just to to touch base one of the things that i remember the value i mean the values that my mom is still when i was little three words uh, they, they were survival Survival and survival and survival. <laughs> survival. <laughs> right. That's 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 what she talked about all the time. She said, "You know, you got to make it out here. You know, you got to make it out here. You know, you can't. You're not going to be able to make it out here unless you make it out here. You know, that's what she talked about all the time. And so, uh, Sunday was her only day off, and Sunday was wash clothes and clean up the house day because she wasn't there all week long. So. It wasn't a church kind of thing, you know. My brother and sister used to go to church um, because she, they, my sister was just a, a prolific reader, you know. She was kind of like a prodigy, and my brother just liked it because it was a social setting. I never did go because I was watching Flash Gordon, but <laughs> you know. <laughs> but I mean, 
um, the best that we got was mom used to sing hymns, you know, on Sunday while she was cooking and cleaning and stuff and things like that. So this is, I think we should stop and say that this is Morning Black, building learners leaders and, leaders and, and cultural, cultural knowledge. knowledge. So at 103.1 WVLP. So yeah, um, so you know that the kind of community centers are non-existent now. Another thing that's missing and a lot of people will probably really cringe when I say this, and you probably will too, is that you know there is no rite of passage for our young people. There is no, there used to be a uh, requirement that young men at least uh, register for the draft. And that's because there was a war going on. You know, there were different wars. Um, and so men were plucked from their communities and they were thrown into a situation where they were given physical training and also uh, training, unfortunately, how to kill people. Um, and also, but they also learned employable skills. We don't have that now. And well, you still have registration, but you don't have you don't have the draft you don't have people you know saying you got to go exactly and you know. is there actually um there's a registration now for both men and women now okay and yeah. but are is that enforced actually yeah i mean you know you're asked for that registration you know when you got to do stuff like you know like when you want to I asked my kids about it, and they said, well, yeah, you know, like when you're going to register for class and things of that nature, you know, part of the idea is that, you know, there's certain things you got to do. I mean, you know, so, you know, you got to – your 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 status in terms of your age status is, has, has to be registered, you know. But it's not – it's not uh, – it wasn't like when the Vietnam War was going on, the Korean War was going on, where people – you actually could get a let letter that says, which you got to show up, and, you know, you got to, right. you know – no, no, that's not what's good. That's not happening anymore. But, you know, and so, you know, and I have this, I have this uh, theory, you know, that, it, you know, that there are some things that need to go on in our community if we are going to address the violence that killed uh, Aaron Davis, uh, if we're going to address now, the violence. I, I'm going to respectfully disagree with you now. I mean, you know. I think we have to do something, but I I don't think the military is it. Well, I I'm mean, not saying I, I'm not saying <laughs> military. Uh, okay, you know, uh, you can, uh, right. I mean volunteers in service to America. You could do, be a Vista volunteer or something like that. Where well, you that could, that you is could, a part of my theory too. Yeah, so you know, yeah, but, but I I think yeah. I think that young people, no matter what color they are—white, black, green, yellow, red—should. Uh, have to do some sort of service service but along with that they need to get the training the discipline and uh you know so that their perspectives on the world so your your assumption is is that when we talk about parenting then there's going to be a segment in the society that's not going to get get parented either intentionally or unintentionally right i mean let's look at you know so that that's that's your that, that's your final answer is that there's going to be some some kids just ain't going to get it, and yes. and society 
whatever they learn in society, they're going to have to learn it on their own or they're going to learn it from the television or from now from Facebook, social media, whatever it might right. be. But it's not going to be a parent there to saying yes, no. There, There's a large segment of kids that are having a tremendous impact on our society. And it's not just in Chicago. It's not just in Gary. I mean, you hear about these shootings all over. Oh, yeah, it's on. It's on now. Right. I mean, you know. And so I think, you know, if you ever, um, you know, read the book, Lord of the Flies, you know, uh, there were a group of kids who were undirected who ended up, you know, turning. I mean, they were wild. You know, they formed these a gang, so to speak. And so um, I think that when we look at our society and, you know, there are people who are putting their heads together, you know, what can we do? And, you know, uh, there's this whole thing about diversity and, and the police. Yeah, the police... There, that is a big problem. But in order to make a significant change in our society, I think you have to look at society as a, as a system. You know, it's like um, a car. You know, if you have four flat tires and you just fix one of the flat tires, the car is still not going to be any use to you. So even if you fix so speak the police and make all these changes to the police you are still not fixing so to speak some of the root causes of um the societal ills uh, yeah i mean i kind of agree with that um but i'm not sure the government going to be able to get you off the hook on that well i mean you know i, I guess what i'm saying is is um the issues that I'm seeing, I, th I think uh, what I loved about uh, the article that Jane gave us is, is that the intentionality of those women uh, saying, I'm going to make sure my kids, it reminded me of Ty Nishi Coates' right. piece where he said, I'm going to make sure my kid understands what racism is and how to respond to it. Uh, on one end of that, I kind of I kind of bristled up because I said, well, why? Uh, what happens to a kid when you begin the first the first conversations that you have with them? Let me tell you why you are not different than anybody else. When when you you understand what I'm saying? When 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 a kid is growing up and you and you're trying to reassure him or her that she is or he is is just as good as anybody else, just as beautiful as anybody else. You know, you're trying to explain to that child what difference is and why difference doesn't mean worse it or better it just means different yes but to do that means that the kids already the kid is smart so basically so why mom making this big difference about difference you know what's going on in the world that's that in other words you lose some innocence as soon as that conversation begins and I, and I think of you know the situations in my own life and situations that I've seen in other people's life is when they first realize that little black kids and little white kids get treated different, you know, little, you know, like situations, racial situations exist, class situations exist. And so we, we all hope for a better world where that, you know, you, it comes to a time where you don't have to do that kind of thing. But the reality is, is that, you know, that's not something that the government is going to be able to fix. No, I'm not saying that the government is going to be able to fix it. But I'm saying that 
as a start, we have to look at the whole society. And so the other prong to my uh, plan, so to speak, is that we involve the institutions in our community. I don't think that there is a community. Now, maybe in rural communities, there are not a lot of churches, but I, I would gain say that at least in urban communities, there are a lot of churches that sit empty all week long and only open up like on Sundays. And in, in other words, I'm saying we're not really using all of our institutions to their fullest extent. Oh, yeah. I mean, but and, and but, I but, think that the, the government could fund programs like the one where the priest was giving you chocolate milk, but only expand that and have like social centers. Uh, in different churches who would be giving grants. I'm not even... Well, you got some churches that are doing that, Paula, but the, the fact is, is that, and, and, and let me go out and let me go out and say this. The fact is, is that many of these churches are not relevant any longer to what's going on in these kids' lives. You right. know, so, so, I mean, you know, if, if, if I have a health care disparity, if I have a food disparity, if I have just an income inequality disparity, uh, coming in church and listen to you preach to me about you know who jesus is and then you know passing passing me out some some stuff now and then it's not going to change my situation I'm, I'm looking at chicago today for example which is one of the the, the largest it has one of the highest um murder murders it has one of the largest carjacking kind of you know situations police are overwhelmed i mean you know you know right. because but no i'm not saying bring the people into the church and have church services i'm saying i'm saying use the buildings in the church to develop these communities where kids can come and play ping pong kids can come and play chess. is your parish being used like that it is not it is not we do have a soup kitchen and we do have a food bank see, and you know and that's it so one you of know, the things i found out when i when i was in that kind of ministry is that most of the church folks don't want them folks up in there I mean, you know, they just, I remember very clearly when we was trying to feed people in South Shore, you know, the, the biggest naysayers, the biggest people who were resisting feeding the folk were basically church members who were saying, you got them stinky people coming up, you know, in the church, you know, tearing up the church. So, I mean, yeah, we have it's almost, Paula, I would almost say it's almost too late for that. I mean, you know, it might, you might be able to do that, but you would have to have a widespread policy change yes you know in society to do that kind of thing and i think it, i mean i i think that might be too little too late i'm my question is is how do you instill some i, I mean despite my mom not being there she did instill a couple of things in in, in my family she said survive that was a, a big thing but she also said education you know she said you know you got to get educated and you, you know and the reason why she said that all the time was because she never did get her high school diploma, you know, and so that hindered her. You know, she saw as she got older, she she began to recognize how that hindered her, and she began to so she pushed, pushed, pushed. She didn't have to push Sheila, but she did push me and Tom, and um, and we 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 took that seriously, and that kind of changed our lives, education and survival. Um, but you know, a lot of the, the there's a there's at least two or maybe three generations of kids um, that I know of that basically um, they didn't get that value insertion. They did get it, and, and, and you're right about it, 
the church, our church, did for a time instill that value. That became the haven of some some kids. But I'm thinking about they were blessed because of union, you know, when we, union community, because we were together and we, we kind of did that. But for the most part, churches in the inner city weren't doing that. Right, but that's why I say, you know, they are going to have to be incentivized uh, to do what I'm talking about. They're going to have to be, and maybe this is a, a place where some young parents can be hired to man these programs for the kids in the community. And like I said, I think that they're going to have to, you know, for some kids it is uh, too late. <clears throat> so you're saying incentivize unintentional parents to be intentional parents, to learn intentional parenting. And incentivize the churches who are not really, uh, you know, who are not fully utilizing their facilities, incentivize them to open up their facilities for these uh, programs and, and children before and after school programs. Well, you, you know, like I said on, you know, been doing this kind of work, you know, on and off for a long time. And, you know, there's always new stuff always coming on. They're always talking about curriculum reform and, you know, we right. want to teach, you know, critical race theory and all stuff like that. And most of that stuff, I, I think, are, are falling on deaf ears. Um, but one of the things I've always wanted is, you know, you know, allies and all, everybody else, you know, saying, well, we want to make changes in the community. But no one has taken really a lot of time trying to give parents who don't have the information the information they need to do to do good parenting well the thing of it is how do you get their ear some parents yes their ears are open they they are interested uh and they will listen you know there's a large segment that do but then there's a large segment who are not even there they're just you know, like I said, they have kind of dropped you out. You got to get them. You got to get them off that wheel. I mean, that yes. wheel, you know, that wheel that's that that survival wheel where, you know, I mean, and, you know, we could do a part two to this whole parenting thing. And I think we should because, you know, our time is almost up already. Right. Um, but, yeah, I mean, you know, how do you get them off the survival wheel? How do you get them off of the. Well, I got to I got to work this job because I got to pay the bills. I mean, you know, I, I was just looking at what a, a parent pays for kids who are in daycare. Daycare charges an extraordinary amount of money. But that's what I'm talking about. That's why some of these vacant, even, you know, schools that have, uh, who close up tight at three o'clock when the bell sure. rings, you know, I'm not just talking about, and I said churches because most communities have, have some kind church of buildings. buildings. You know, I, I think about the law school sitting up there that this huge physical plan over there could, could do right. so many positive things that could, could be done with that, you know. But at the end of the day, folks gonna try to make money, so I mean, you know, right. that's a whole nother conversation, right? About how you could transform the hill, so to speak, you know, in, in terms of putting the people who need it into motion to do the things that need to be done. But I hear you, I mean, what happens if you have a eight week program? or 10 or 12 reprogram where you pay people $15 an hour to come and enhance parenting skills and then put those skills to work in their own households and the households of other individuals who need it. Yeah, I mean, that could be one part of it. But I'm talking about something that is available. Not only that, you know, these centers could have classes like 
I don't know if you've ever visited the Croc Center in uh, Roseland, in the Roseland community, mm-hmm. uh, but I know we're out of time uh, almost. Well, so. Tell us about it before we got, we got three minutes. Okay, good. You know, the Croc Center is funded by the Croc uh, dynasty of McDonald's, the, the woman, the wife. Uh, left a, uh, I guess, an endowment, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And there's this beautiful complex that is, they offer a, a plethora of activities, uh, swimming, uh, quilting, dance, everything, you know. And the it's for the community. It's not totally free, uh, but, you know, they it, it's just a huge complex I know kind of like a boys and girls club, but yeah, bigger, bigger. It, okay. it is just amazing. And I know that every community does not have the um, the funds to have a center like that. But people need to look at that as a goal. But you don't even need that to offer. Like in my church, we have a lower level, you know, that, you know, kids could learn various things. Um, uh, if people were incentivized to come there. And I think your program that you just mentioned could work. Yeah, well, I think you need to have a whole constellation of stuff. Oh, I mean, absolutely. You know, I mean, you know, I think if parenting is just one of the, the things, and we didn't get too involved in d- depth in terms of it, but at the same time, I think the points that we, we make is basically uh, these parenting skills, both intentional and un- unintentional, whether or not they're being given to the kids or not, are something that the community is going to have to assume responsibility for. Exactly. It's not just the police. It's not just the teachers. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's got to be everybody. This machine has to work together. This community is like a car, you know, and the machine, all the wheels have to turn, and the motor engine has to be uh, maintained on a continuous basis. So... Um, Anyway, I, you know, I, I want to say this to, you know, I, I wish, you know, like even the Biden administration, the administration in Chicago, the administration in Gary uh, would start looking at these things. But I think the violence has to be dealt with. Well, I think the young people are saying something to you. I mean, with all that you see that's going on, young people are crying out however they are doing it. And unfortunately, it's taken a lot of lives. We need to continue this conversation. Perhaps we can do a part two to parenting as part of uh, our, one of our, the planks in our critical race theory platform that we want to build. Until next time, folks, morning black.